Morning, guys. Good to see you. Good to hear you. Good to smell you. Good to have you here. I got a crazy idea. Let's study the book of Revelation together. That's really, that'd be really cool, isn't it? It's going to get really hairy here in a few weeks. I'm just telling you, if any of you guys know anything about this book, I'd appreciate you giving me an email. When we get into this thing about chapter 4, it's going to get wild and hairy. Right now, it's going to make a whole lot of sense. Let's just rejoice in that for a few weeks. Then it's going to get really busy. Gentlemen, let's turn to Revelation chapter 1, that last book in your Bible. Be sure to hold your Bible right side up so you can read it this morning. Let me remind us what we're doing. We're trying to get Revelation back into our functional library, into our functional Bible. You know, everybody's got a Bible here, and everybody knows something about the Bible, I suppose. Uh, you know where the table of contents is. And somebody may know John 3.16 and a few other things in your Bible. All of us have certain parts of the Bible we remember, our mother told us, or maybe we read it somewhere. But what we want to do is get the whole Bible in our minds. And Revelation is often the last book you actually add to your functional library. And we've said that if we can get through these weeks together and get Revelation back as part of our living canon, our, our Bible that we actually use, we will have really spent some good time together because it's worth it. We've seen that Revelation does not really give us anything brand new that we wouldn't get anywhere else in the Scriptures. What Revelation does, as the last book in the Bible, it takes all that we've learned about God and about Christ and about our relationship with Him and puts it in the form of a very vivid and graphic, what we call literary video, which is meant to arrest us like a hurricane, as we saw last week. And what's it to arrest us from? Is to arrest us from our complacency, from our apathy, and from our discouragement and our cynicism, and it's supposed to thrust us into living a really victorious life and understanding that we're the champs. We're going to win at the end of this game, and we need to be living like we know that. So that's the purpose of Revelation. We want to get that back in our, in our functional Bible because we need it, because we do get discouraged, we do get apathetic, we do get lazy, we do forget, we do get dull in our thinking. Now, we discovered all this as we just looked at the first three verses last week. And what we want to do today, I think we listed it as verses 4 through 11. We're actually going to just go through verses 4 through 8. Uh, is that in focus? I guess it is. Focused enough. Uh, so we're going to just look at these um, five verses together. And you'll notice the first uh, three verses we read, if you're using the NIV, it just says prologue there. And then we get in today to what's known as the salutation, or in the NIV there, it's headed up greetings and doxology. In a salutation, basically what happens is it's like a, a very typical, what we call epistolary or letter form in the first century. And where we say, dear so-and-so, and sign sincerely so-and-so, we, we identify to whom the letter is going at the beginning and from whom the letter is at the end, uh, in typical uh, Greek epistolary form, you identify both the one who's writing and the one who receives it at the very beginning. So this is what's known as the salutation. And it is classical Greek form, but within this classic Greek form, you find some very radical information. And that's the way that Paul often writes. He'll use the forms of his own day. He's not trying to change the forms. He's trying to change the substance. So within a classic form... You get, it's just chock full of great theological stuff and stuff that's useful for everyday living. So let's look at it, beginning with verse 4. John, 
to the seven churches in the province of Asia. Grace and peace to you from Him who is and who was and who is to come. And from the seven spirits before His throne. And from Jesus Christ who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. To Him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by His blood and has made us to be a kingdom and priests to serve His God and Father. To Him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. Look, He is coming with the clouds and every eye will see Him, even those who pierced Him. And all the peoples of the earth will mourn because of Him. So shall it be. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Okay, let's take a look at this. First of all, we're going to see that a revelation does identify the author. You're going to say, what difference does that make? Well, it makes a, it makes a big difference, as we'll, as we'll see. First of all, the author is identified, that is namely John, because the content of revelation is not just apocalyptic, it's prophetic. I think my writing is weak. I need some new pens. They say there's this stuff called PowerPoint, but I, I don't know about that. I, but I'll, uh, I'll, I'll get new pens. How's that? The writer is identified because it's prophetic. Uh, you'll find in prophetic literature, the author is always identified. Why? Because the author is making a moral point, and he's challenging his hearers, and it's always personal. In typical apocalyptic literature, you do not identify the author. Or you use a name of someone who's clearly a pseudonym. Uh, this is from Ezra the scribe, da 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 da, but it's written in first century AD, and Ezra the scribe died hundreds of years ago. So you'll use a pseudonym in apocalyptic, so you never know who writes the apocalyptic. It's very mysterious. It's usually very pessimistic. The purpose of apocalyptic literature, if you look at if any, any of the uh, contemporary literature when, when John is writing, and read some of that apocalyptic stuff, it's, it's very pessimistic. It just uses all these images to show how miserable the world is and how bad it is, and you don't know who the author is. It's just very mysterious, kind of like our mysteries or magic that we see in the movies. But what John's apocalyptic uh, is distinctive for is not just being apocalyptic, it's prophetic. It's also very optimistic, as we're going to see. There are a lot of blood and guts but we're standing at the top of the hill at the end of the day. It's a very optimistic apocalyptic, and it's very prophetic. So we're going to see the very purpose of it is to change lives, not just to entertain. And so John is identified because this is a letter. It's an apocalyptic letter. It's a prophetic apocalyptic letter. So he's identified in the beginning because it's prophetic. He's also identified because the purpose of this letter, as we saw last time, is pastoral. John himself is in exile. His people are under persecution. And we'll be talking about this more later when we're trying to figure out the date of this letter. There are two periods that were particularly intense with persecution. And we'll look at those two periods as the two options for the period of authorship. And we'll, we'll take a position on this later when we need to, when we get to chapters 4 and following. But uh, leave it for now that the Apostle John is himself being persecuted. He's been separated from the people of God. They're under persecution, and he's seeking to encourage them. And gentlemen, I don't know if you know this, but you've got enemies out there. Have you noticed that? you notice that the world is hostile? 
You notice that when you ever try to do anything right, there's always evil waiting, lurking in the darkness to make an idiot out of you. Uh, there's, there are tremendous enemies out there. Some of you have really put yourselves forward as followers of Christ, and you found yourself uh, making some people, some people unhappy about that. You found yourself perhaps marginalized in certain social circles because of your position with Christ. And if you look around the world, you'll find millions of people being put to death this very year because they are followers of Christ. So there's a lot of persecution out there. This is a pastoral letter to people who are seeking to walk with Christ in a hostile environment, and it's a very encouraging pastoral letter. So John's identified because he is a pastor. John's a tremendous poet, tremendous theologian, but he is eminently a pastor, and this book is written to to people to encourage them. Now, thirdly, the authority is apostolic. If you look, it just says John. Say, who's John? We've got several Johns here in this room. One of you wrote it? You know, some other John, first century? Who's this John? Well, some people will uh, try to debate who this John is, and some are not real sure that it's the same John who is the, the one who put his head on Jesus' breast, the one of the twelve disciples. There's a lot of scholarly debate about it. And there are some reasons for that. When they ask, is this the same John as the Gospel writer, there are some things that cause people to think, well, it probably is not the same John as the Gospel writer. For example, there are 900 words in each of, of the books, the Gospel of John and Revelation. 900 words, different vocabulary words in Greek in each, roughly 900. But there are fewer than half of those words in common. In other words, the vocabulary of the Gospel of John is quite different from the vocabulary in the book of Revelation. So some folks say, it just doesn't seem like the same person. Also, you've got different styles. I guess that's really obvious, isn't it? That in the Gospel of John, it is stylistic to some degree, but not nearly as hairy and crazy and wild as Revelation. So you have very different styles. But on the other hand, there are common words, phrases, and concepts. For example, you have the Lamb. John uses that in his Gospel, unlike the other Gospel writers. John speaks of the Lamb of God, and in Revelation he does so. He speaks of the water of life in both John and in Revelation. He speaks often of keeping the commandments. Those of you familiar with the Upper Room Discourse, John 14 to 16, he talks a lot about keeping the commandments. He certainly does that a lot in Revelation. So you get a lot of common ideas, words, concepts, in the two that maybe suggest, well, maybe this guy is just really uh, gifted. He's able to write prose and he's able to write apocalyptic at the same time. And I'd like to suggest to you, that's exactly what I think, because those who think that the same person can't write those two things uh, wouldn't think that C.S. Lewis could write mere Christianity, prose on the one hand, and the line, the witch, and the wardrobe on the other, which is an allegory. But he can, and he did, and they're both great and wonderful. And I bet if you compare the vocabularies, you won't find a whole lot of overlap either. So I'd just suggest that John is probably more gifted than most people realize. But the other thing to ask yourself is, who else would it be? Who else in the first century would just say, John? (laughs) How do we know who John is? Unless it's someone who's a very well-known John. It seems clearly it has to be John the Apostle. And then, uh, if you're looking for evidence outside the Scriptures, uh, we have the witness of the early church fathers, and they're basically unanimous. Uh, For example, Justin Martyr, who wrote around 135 A.D., which would be only 40 years uh, after 
John the Apostle, at least with the timing, that the, the date that I think he wrote it. Uh, I mean, he's just one generation away. Justin Martyr says he wrote it. Irenaeus, Clement of Alexandria, Tertullian, if you're familiar with any of those words. The early fathers from the first three centuries are unanimous in saying it was the Apostle John who wrote it. So we have confidence then that it was John. Now, what difference does this make? Why should we spend any of our time in Amen Bible study talking about who wrote it and getting into these scholarly discussions about, about it? I'd like to talk with you for just a moment about what difference it makes. And the reason I'd like to talk with you is that you get stuff all the time. U.S. News and World Report, Newsweek, Time Magazine, it's everywhere. They're unearthing the Bible these days, trying to figure out what the Bible is. And how do they know what the Bible is? Is the Gospel of Thomas in the Bible or is it not? Are there a lot of other books that were left out that we're now discovering and a lot of other nonsense? Uh, gentlemen, we've known about these books for decades and sometimes centuries. And most of them were very well known at the time that the Bible became the Bible. And they were intentionally excluded. And so it's interesting that now a lot of New Testament scholars in our colleges and universities are suggesting that we're just now discovering some new books. Look what the apostles left out. Look what the church left out. Well, who knows which is the real Bible? We knew all along about these books, and they were intentionally excluded for real reasons. Now, one of them is that books of the New Testament are basically written by apostles. Now, who are apostles? First of all, they are eyewitnesses of the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ. So those who wrote the New Testament were those who saw Him with their own eyes. And that's, that is one of the requirements to be an apostle, with a capital A, of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is precisely the reason the Apostle Paul made so much of his vision of seeing Christ Himself with His own eyes when he was on his way to Damascus to persecute the Christians. He was on his way to Damascus to go into the church there and haul out of there those Christians and imprison them and persecute them and kill them. And on the way, Jesus Christ appeared to him in a vision, knocked him on his rear end off his horse and struck him blind for a, a little while. Uh, he, had a, an ama- he had a revelation. And Paul, for the rest of his life, made much of that. Why? Because he said, I'm the least of all the apostles and I'm the last one who saw him, but I saw him. So the apostle Paul made much of that because any apostle with apostolic authority was an eyewitness of the Lord Jesus Christ in His resurrected body. Secondly, they were personally commissioned. Jesus Christ told His apostles, you'll find this in the Gospels, to go out and make it known. And that when they're received, He's received. When they're rejected, He's rejected. Once again, the apostle Paul made it clear in his testimony to King Agrippa that the Lord Jesus Christ commissioned him to go to the Gentiles, to go outside the known church, to go to those who had never heard, and to proclaim Jesus Christ as Lord. He had a personal commission from Jesus Christ, as did all the apostles. Thirdly, they were miracle workers. They were given the power the power to work signs and wonders. Now, I know some of you may be from a tradition that still speaks of signs and wonders, and some of you may have seen God's miraculous work in your own life or in someone else's life or in your church. God can do whatever God wants to do whenever God wants to do it. And if He wants to break into history and do phenomenal things and suspend the laws of nature, He certainly has the right and He certainly has the power to do whatever He wants to do. But what we find in the New Testament is that there was a cadre of men who were peculiarly given consistent power to work signs and miracles that were quite extraordinary. And this was for the purpose of validating their message. 
It was not to make them heroic or to exalt them so much. It was to exalt Christ and to validate the message they were communicating. And the one great sign that we all have that validates the message of the Bible is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That is the one big enduring miracle that we believe is undeniable and that validates the message of God's forgiveness for those who trust in Him. But the apostles, as they went into the, new, the, the, the world with a new message, went with this extraordinary power. And you find Paul talking about that at the end of 2 Corinthians. He talks about those who were accompanied with signs and wonders. And they were very aware that they were given that apostolic office. Now, what difference does all this make? It means that there is an intrinsic authority, an intrinsic authority to the ministry of the apostles. Now, the apostles were not perfect. They were sinners. And everything the apostles said was not necessarily perfect. But when they wrote Scripture, it was inspired by God. It was His authority, but it was also coming through a human being who had been given intrinsic authority as an apostle. That's the reason, in my opinion, that you find a lot of attacks on the apostolic authorship of the Scriptures because if I can disprove the apostolic authorship of the Scriptures, it seems to lose its intrinsic authority and now we're just into spiritual or theological defenses of the Scripture. So, if you will examine very closely what the other side is saying, so to speak, those who want to undermine apostolic authority, if you listen to them for a little while, it won't take you long to realize there's another agenda somewhere pushing this. And I would suggest to you it's an anti-supernaturalist agenda. That God doesn't point out people like this. He doesn't give, himself, uh, give them visions. He do, didn't give them a personal commission. And He doesn't give signs and wonders. And that this whole thing cannot be supernaturally true, all these miracles and so on. So once you start out with the presupposition that miracles can happen, guess what conclusion you end up with? Miracles can happen, including resurrections and people going to heaven and all the rest. So if you start out with that presupposition, that's the conclusion you're going to come to. And I suggest to you that most of the debate uh, in the magazines that you see, the universities and the colleges, is coming from a presupposition that miracles cannot happen. Now, the Christian simply wants to open up with the presupposition miracles could happen. And we believe they did happen. But we at least start off with an open mind. And then, of course, as G.K. Chesterton once said, the purpose of an open mind is the same as the purpose of an open mouth, and that is to close down eventually on something solid. And so you start out with an open mind, and you close down on something that's true and that makes a difference in life and seems to be validated by historical evidence and by reason and by the sacred Scriptures. So this is what difference it makes that John says, John. He's saying it's prophetic. It's coming from a person who has pastoral intention toward you, who wants to encourage you. And it's coming from a person who has authority to speak to you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and to give you solid, revealed doctrine. So we better listen up. That's the reason for that introduction. Listen up. Here's a guy who loves you and cares about you, has a pastoral intent toward you, and has the authority to say some things to you that you may not have thought of yourself. Now, secondly... Notice that Revelation blesses its audience. We've seen this already in the verses that we skimmed over quickly last week where he says at the end that blessed, verse 3, is the one who reads the words of this prophecy. Blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it because the time is near. And then you get to uh, the latter part of verse 4 and he says, Grace and peace to you 
grace and peace to you. To the seven churches in the province of Asia, grace and peace to you. So first of all, I want us to notice that the blessing is profound. If we are having, as a result of believing this book, if we're going to study this book and then understand this book and then believe this book, you better get ready for a blessing. I'm talking about a big blessing. Why? Well, two words that are very important. First of all, grace. He says grace to you. Why is that so profound? Let me tell you why it's profound. It's because nowhere else, nowhere else in this world, no other book that you'll ever read will teach you this grace and communicate this grace to you like this book will communicate to you. And I'm not just talking about Revelation. I'm talking about the Bible. I'm not a scholar of comparative religions. I didn't do a Ph.D. uh, uh, in religion. So I cannot say that I've read all the Upanishads and I have read the Quran, but I haven't read all the religious books of the world. So I, I, I don't speak as one who has that kind of academic authority. I just speak as one who dabbles like a lot of you do. I, I like to read a lot of this stuff. I, I have a vested interest in comparative religions. So I, I, do, I do read about these people every once in a while. You know what I mean? And here's what I'm saying to you. Uh, nowhere in the scope of the entire world and all of its religions is there one other religion that says that you can have eternal life and that you can have all of the blessings of God without it being based on your performance. There's nowhere else that you're ever told that but in the Scriptures, the Bible, the Old Testament and the New Testament of God. That's the only place you'll get it. And so when John is saying grace to you, gentlemen, he is saying something extremely profound. Grace. What is grace? Well, I learned as a new Christian... 30 years ago, grace is God's riches at Christ's expense. G-R-A-C-E. God's riches at Christ's expense. So I get all of God's riches. All that He can do for a human being, I'm going to get it. I'm getting some of it now, but I'll get all of it later. And it's all at Christ's expense, not my expense. Now, being a Christian is very costly. It'll cost you your whole life. But that's not worth much. <laughs> Think about what's your life worth? Well, compared to Jesus, your life ain't worth much. So you never could buy with your life. If you gave your whole life, you, it would not be enough to buy what God's going to give to you. You're going to have to, you're going to, have to pay, pay a higher price than your life. And the price that had to be paid was a perfect life. And that's the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. And when He pays that price for you, look what it purchases. All the blessings of God. Anything God in His infinite power, can dream up to do for a human being. He's dreamt up for you, and He's going to give it to you because His Son purchased it for you. There's grace. And that's what John is saying as your pastor. He's saying grace to you. May it just flood your soul. Uh, one, one time I, I heard a, or read an illustration that Chuck Swindoll had given about grace. It's one of the best ones I ever heard. He says, just imagine, gentlemen, that through some great tragedy... Uh, a man comes and takes the life of your child through the worst possible means you can imagine, your little eight-year-old child. He is eventually apprehended, goes to jail. And before he does, you, you're thinking in your mind, you've got two options. You can either load up a pistol and go down near the courthouse and wait until he comes through and then blow his brains out, your first chance. 
Or secondly, you can leave him in the hands of the state and trust that they'll execute justice. Those are your two options. But Swindoll says, now, what if he is apprehended and he goes to jail and you have the opportunity to go see him in his jail cell and you go down that long hall with all those bars on the right and the left and you get to the end of the hall and you take a right into his jail cell and you close the door behind you and it's just the two of you. And you say to him, sit down, I want to talk to you. And then you tell him that you unconditionally forgive him. And furthermore, that you want to adopt him as your son. Swindoll says, that's grace. You have justice on the one hand. You can either kill him yourself or let somebody else kill him. But when you get to grace, unconditional forgiveness, and you adopt him, as the son to take the place of the one that was killed. Now, that's what's happened to people who are Christ followers, and you can see why Christ followers are pretty passionate about following Christ, because look what God has done for them. We, by our sin, killed his son. We've been apprehended. We're guilty. And God the Father comes to us and completely forgives us and then tells us we're going to be his sons. Nowhere else do you get this story but in the sacred scriptures. This is grace. It's at the very heart of it. It's not just cleansing your record. It's not just letting you off. It's not just forgiveness. It's adoption. It's bringing you into the family. It's loving you. And it's giving you credit, furthermore, for what Christ did, not what you did. It's absolutely astonishing. And when people are hit with grace, their lives are turned inside out. And if their lives are not hit with grace the best they can do is to try to be a good moralist. Pick a few rules that are easy enough for you to keep and to judge other people by, and you base your life on those rules. And it's so interesting. Everybody here has got some rules. Everybody. Whether you're a Christian or not a Christian, you've got a set of rules by which you judge your own performance and you judge everybody else. The gay community, they've got their rules. They've got their religion. If you don't agree with their rules, you're not in their community. You're excluded. You're excommunicated from their religion. They've got their worldview. They've got an entire system of thought. They've got a God. Every, every thought form has, it makes itself into a religion and a set of rules. Everybody's got that. So it's not a matter of whether you're moral or not. It's a matter of whether you know how to find forgiveness and inclusion and acceptance and eternal life or not. And no set of rules is going to get you to heaven. And no set of performance records are going to get you to heaven. It's the grace of God. So grace, he says, be to you. And then he says, peace. What is peace? Well, in the Greek here, it's irene, from which we get the word irenic, peaceful. But in the Hebrew, you know, shalom. And what is shalom? It's a complete sense of well-being. It's having your whole life blessed, everything in order, and experiencing the blessings of God. That's shalom. That's peace. So we're at peace with God. We're at peace with ourselves and at peace with our neighbor. Give me some more of that shalom. And what John is saying is, if you will listen to the revealed Word of God, if you'll give yourself to it, this is the way shalom is going to come to you. And I just tell you, I, I deal with, with guys all the time in their, their marital life, their fathering, their, their business life, their broken relationships in the community, their civic life. And we're all trying to put this whole thing together. And you know, really, my observation is, 
after a bunch of years of this, there's really only one thing that integrates everything and brings peace and direction and a sense of contentment in life, and that's Jesus Christ right at the heart of it all. And when He's not there, I always find that down deep underneath, when a man is honest enough with me to tell me how he's really getting along, there's, there's a fragmented life and there's not shalom. And Jesus Christ is the only one who can bring that sense of well-being. And, Paul, and John is saying, look, grace and shalom to you. And if we'll listen to this grand apostle and to the power of the Spirit in his writing, we will have both grace and peace. Now, notice also that the audience is very particular. Revelation blesses its audience. You see the overwhelming blessing that's being given. But look at who this particular audience is. He says in verse 4, to the seven churches in the province of Asia. Why churches? Why does he say, why did he say, Grace and shalom to everybody in the universe. Grace and shalom to people everywhere. No, he says to the churches. Why? Because the church is where God pulls His people together. And and the word church is ekklesia. In English, I suppose you'd spell that A, or rather E-K-K-L-E-S-I-A. Or E-C-C-L-E-S-I-A from which we get ecclesiology or ecclesiastical. It's ecclesia in Greek. And it just means the called out ones. And specifically, it means the assembly. So, in fact, in government in the first century, they would speak of the assembly, the civic assembly, the city hall where they would do business. And the church is the assembly, but it's a different kind of assembly. It's the assembly of God. God's assembly. It's His people that He convenes together. The Hebrew word for church is kahal, which means an assembly. So it's just a gathering. There's something sacred about people gathering in the name of God. And He's speaking to those who gather in His name. Why would He make His blessings particular to them? Because they are His people. The word church, the English word church, comes from the Celtic word kirk. K-I-R-K. The Celtic word kirk comes from the Greek word kuriake. Kurios means Lord. Kuriake means of the Lord. So the kirk or the church are those who are of the Lord. So the Lord has His people who are of Him. His people. So when we assemble in the name of God, we're simply saying, we're yours. And He's saying, I'm yours. And that's the relationship between the church and God. They're his, he calls the church His bride. He calls the church His children. He calls the church the apple of His eye. We're very special to Him. So this grace and peace is going to a particular audience, to the churches. Now, why seven? This is very interesting. Because in Asia, the region that John is addressing, this is uh, Western Asia, right on the Aegean. Some of you may have been to Istanbul, and if you go on down south, you come to Smyrna, uh, which is one of the churches, and Ephesus. Uh, Anybody here been to Ephesus? A few of you have. It's absolutely wonderful to see these ruins beautifully uh, restored in Ephesus. Uh, So you know we're talking about the western coast of Turkey because the island of Patmos is just off the coast, and it's kind of like Alcatraz. Uh, John is on Alcatraz, in exile, but he can look back to the coast of Turkey and he can actually see where these churches are. And in in fact, when we get to the churches and they're listed a little later, he starts at the north and goes right to the south. 
And it's just like he's looking at them and he just names them off, speaking to these seven churches. Now, the fact is there are more than seven. For example, you don't find in the list of churches in Revelation Colossae. Well, Colossae, I mean, he wrote a letter to Colossae, but you don't find them listed here. And there, there, uh, Heriopolis is another one that uh, we don't find. Uh, not Heriopolis. That's in uh, Egypt. Yeah, it is actually Heriopolis. There's another Heriopolis, uh, right? Not just in Egypt. Uh, but, and Troas, another place where we know there's a church, but John doesn't list it. So why seven? Well, I'm so glad you asked. Uh, obviously, you know from if you've read through Revelation, given it a good read, and if you haven't yet, just start making your way through it. Don't worry about making sense out of it. We're just trying to get you a, a general feel of this book. Just read through it. You can't help but notice there are seven trumpets and there are seven bowls full of wrath and, and seven churches. All kinds of sevens. Seven was, of course, the number of perfection and completion. So what John is doing by picking seven churches, he's saying this is representative of the whole church because seven is a number of completion and perfection. And he just picks seven churches in particular and he's going to address each one of them. But it simply is a symbol of the entire church. And that's why he uses seven because it fits in with his apocalyptic scheme and because it expresses the breadth of the whole church. So, first of all, we've seen that uh, Revelation identifies the author and shows us that it is prophetic and pastoral and apostolic. And now he's blessing his audience. What a profound blessing we have with grace and peace. And it is to the entire church. Now, thirdly, Revelation reveals and praises God. One reason we desperately need this letter back in our functional Bible is we need to learn about the life of praising God from our hearts all the time. It's a key to knowing His grace and His peace every day. If you're like me, you, know, you get these 8-hour, 12-hour, sometimes 16-hour days. You're going from the moment you get up in the morning till the time you put your head in the pillow and you hardly have time to think. And I, I just suggest when we get into that kind of a pattern, we're not going to be knowing much about grace and peace. At least I don't when I get into that pattern. And I'm doing spiritual work. But it's just going by too fast. And there's no time to really think about it. No time to meditate. No time to worship. And what the apocalypse is going to show us as it arrests us in our apathy is that one reason we're so apathetic, doggone it, is because we don't really ever think about the grandeur of who God is and His purpose in redemption. We don't stop and think and we never give Him praise and honor. You can do this driving down the road. Just You see someone you know along the sidewalk there. And you think, yeah, and then you just praise God for it. Lord, all friends are gifts from you. And you just give Him the praise which is His due. It's a lifestyle of praising Him. And you will find that when you start talking to Him like that and you start giving Him credit for what is due Him, you'll find that the rest of life starts to make a little sense to you. And, you know, sometimes we get in our difficulties and our afflictions and our trials, and we've all said it at one time or another. I don't know why God's treating me like this. You know, I, I love, uh, 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 what's the, the movie? Fiddler on the Roof. And uh, when Tevye, you know, is in the barn and just saying, God, we're your chosen people. But based on the way you treat us, why don't you choose someone else for a while? <laughs> and, you know, I just love the dialogue. It's actually a monologue between Tevye and God. Tevye's doing all the talking. And just wonder, God, what... We're chosen. Why do you treat us this way? I don't understand. And, uh, you know, we're told that Jewish people are always asking questions. And uh, 
And one time a Jewish friend was, was asked, why is it you all ask, just ask questions all the time? He said, what do you mean? Uh, and uh, so when you look at Tabia, you see a guy who's asking God questions, questions, questions. But you know what? We, we've all done that. We've all done that. Wonder, God, why is my life so tough? Why, why are things so miserable? Why is this happening to me? Do I deserve this? The answer is yes. <laughs> and far worse. And the only purpose of my life is to give glory to Him. And when you get in a habit of worship, you'll find that you, the answers will come a little bit more quickly to you. You'll realize the purpose of my life is to glorify Him. As the Apostle Paul put it, whether by life or by death, I want to exalt Him in my body. So even if I'm ravaged by cancer, the purpose of my life is to glorify Him as I draw my last breath. That's it. I don't understand it all. But when we get into worship, all of life begins to make more sense and we have that sense of victory of fulfilling the purpose for which He made us. Now notice as He reveals to us God. Where does He start? You're going to talk about God. Who is God? Well, let me suggest we need a little help here because I picked up a book one day I don't know. This is probably in the B terminal of the Atlanta airport. I don't know. It's one of those. Uh, it's uh, compiled by D.G. Sullivan called What Do We Mean When We Say God? And I thought, well, that would be interesting. What do people mean when they say God? Well, here's uh, Gopinath Galagali, a Hindu preacher in Nashville. He says, I believe that you can call God by any name because we firmly believe that there is no name which is not God's name. Sounds very Eastern. All sounds have been created by God. So any sound which is created should name Him, should address Him, should be His name. The rustling of the leaves, the sound of the ocean, the singing of the birds, all glorify God. God has given us freedom to do our own thinking and to ask our own questions. He, in effect, listens to all that I have said. But make your own decision. And so on he goes. That's one view of God. Here's another one. This is from Dan Old Elk, Crow Sundance Chief, Hardin, Montana. We believe in one supreme being, Akabadadiya. The first maker, the creator of all things. The creator is the kind of mystical being who works through animals or plants, through nature, the wind, the air, the fire, the water, and the earth. And so on he goes. Well, here's another one. Isaac Asimov, you know this name, a science fiction writer, New York City. It seems to me that God is a convenient invention of the human mind. We are aware of our own ignorance, and so we find refuge in a hypothetical being who knows everything. We are aware of our own weakness, and so we find refuge in a hypothetical being who is all-powerful and who will take care of us out of a generalized benevolence. By imagining a God, then, human beings avoid having to do anything about their own ignorance and helplessness, and this saves a lot of trouble. <laughs> There's what you call an optimistic view of God. Here's my favorite one. This is Gabriel Green. Uh, Gabriel is the president of the Amalgamated Flying Saucer Clubs of America. Here's what Gabriel says. Oh, and guess, you'll never guess where he's from. Yucca Valley, California. This is what he says. God is the electromagnetic field surrounding the earth out of which everything is composed. That's good. That's, so, well, so, how do you know who God is? It makes a huge difference which God you pick. I'm telling you, it makes a huge difference in this life and the next one. Let's pick the right one. So who is the right one? Well, the first thing John's going to show us is he is triune. Some Muslim friends were asking me not too long ago, would you please explain this thing about the Trinity? No, don't get this thing about the Trinity. And what I said to them was that some things about God we are told in the Bible are clear from nature. In other words, 
You look out your window as you drive to work in just a few moments, if the sun is up by then, (laughs) and you will see some things that Paul says make it very clear that there is a God. He is. Furthermore, that He creates. And furthermore, He's very powerful. So you can get all that. You can draw all those conclusions without a Bible. You do not need a Bible to know that there is a God, that He created all things, and that He's very powerful. Okay? Trees don't just emerge. I'm sorry. They don't. Chance, luck produces a big fat zero. Chance never produced anything. Minds and matter produce things. And God in His supreme power has spoken and it came to be and is created in His image. You don't just take human beings and have them emerge out of the murk. It's impossible. If you read Behe's book about Darwin's black box, you see that you can't get from lower forms to higher forms. It's impossible. It's logically impossible. There had to be a creative act. We're made in His image. So if you do science well and you do not have a hidden agenda that's driving your research and conclusions, you will have to come to the conclusion that there is a designer. And, of course, that's becoming more and more popular even in secular universities now. We can't use the word God, but we'll talk about design. Because it's just so doggone obvious. We tried to cover it up for 150 years. You, you just can't go much further than 150 years before it finally will emerge again. Maybe there's a designer. There's some things you know about God by looking at His creation. But there's some things about God that you can only get from the Scriptures. You cannot look at creation and infer that God sent His Son to die for you on the cross. That must be revealed to you. Nor can you get from looking at creation that that Jesus Christ is both fully man and fully God. That's called the mystery of the Incarnation. It's a mystery. These mysteries are revealed in the Scriptures. One of the mysteries is Trinity. That God is one being. He is of one essence. And yet He is in three persons. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You say, how can it be three or how can it be three and one at the same time? Take your pick, preacher. You can't have them both. And you may say to me, which is He, Jesus Christ? Is He fully man or fully God? can't be both. Why can't it be both? Where did you get that assumption? Well, because I've never seen that before. Of course you've never seen it before. It's God. And the same thing with the Trinity. Now, the word Trinity is not in the Bible, but you find, for example, in Matthew 28, go into all the world and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of God. That is, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. You see many verses like that where clearly the name of God is Trinitarian. And you'll find, obviously, that Jesus Christ is a given deity. The Holy Spirit is a given deity status in the Scriptures, as well as the Father. So it is by inference, but it's by clear and necessary inference, that we know that God is triune. And the first person we would speak of is the Father. And the Scriptures say, who is, who was, and who is to come. This is the God who is. There are all kinds of gods out there. And you have an option. You have your civil rights. And we believe in civil rights. And Christians have died for civil rights for all people. Christians have died for people to have the civil right to be wrong in theology. And we'll continue to die for that. 
because we're made in God's image, we're sentient beings, and we should, being made that way, have the right to express it. And so Christians will always lay down their lives for religious freedom for ourselves and for other people because it's, it's consistent with what we believe in the Scriptures. But, so you have the civil right to choose whomever you want. You find Joshua saying the same thing in Joshua 24. There are a bunch of gods out there, the god of the Amorites, the god of the Jebusites. You just go pick whatever god you want, but for me and my house we shall serve the Lord. Joshua chose, chose for himself and his house. And a lot more men need to make a very decisive choice for themselves and for their house. We shall serve the Lord. We need to be leaders. And we need to make this basic decision. Who is God? And as long as you say, well, I don't know if you can really decide. You've already decided. You've already decided you're not going to choose the one true and living God. The way God presents Himself in the Bible through His apostles is that He's the only God. That He's the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's the God who is Trinitarian. And there is no other God. So every other God is not an equal way to get to the top of the mountain. It's a way that will take you to the pits. And there's one path that gets you to the top of the mountain. And that's the path of the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the actual God who is. Wouldn't it be nice to worship a God who actually is? Most people in the world worship a God who isn't. And that's the reason you find you find when Elijah is battling with the prophets of Baal, he doesn't say, oh, let me respect your religion. We, you know, obviously, we all have a right to believe what we want to believe, but we're all equally true. And I certainly wouldn't want to suggest as a follower of Jehovah that my God is any better than yours. We all have our equal right to affirm whichever God we want. And you know we're all going in the same direction. Now, wouldn't that have been a nice speech for Elijah? Elijah said, choose today, and we're going to show the difference. And he told them to, create, you know, to cut up their bull and put it on their wood, and they can call down fire from heaven from their God and see if there is a God. And then he cut up his bull and put it on the wood and see if the fire will come down from heaven from his God, from Jehovah. And he said, Elijah said, the one that answers by fire is God. Well, as I mentioned on Sunday morning, these prophets of Baal, you know, they, were, they cut up their bull and put it over here, and they were doing their holy dances and all this kind of stuff, and... Elijah wasn't saying, oh, I'm sure it's okay. Maybe you'd work out another day. No, he starts to make fun of them. He says, what's wrong with your God? Is he taking a little trip? Maybe he says, your God is napping. Uh, maybe he's gone behind a tree to go to the bathroom. Uh, literally in the Hebrew, that he says maybe he's gone to the bathroom. Uh, he just, he's taunting them. Why? To show that a God who isn't is a God who is trash and who is trashing people. Gentlemen, well, you have to realize, you can say the Bible's not true. You can say Elijah's washed up. You can say that the Apostle John is washed up. But here's a clear and certain message that you get from both of them, Old Testament and New Testament. There's one God, and anybody who proposes a God who doesn't exist is trying to trash you. And there are whole cultures built on trash. I'm sorry, I'm being as... Am I being, should I be any clearer? <laughs> you want a strong memo after this one? Uh, now, that is what the Bible is saying. It, it actually, you'll, you'll find a very strong position taken there. And the reason is grace and peace. And you're only going to get it in one place. And John knows this. 
And he's not going to put up with any silliness about all religions being equal. So do enough study. If you're, if you're uh, uh, undecided on this matter, please study. Please think about it. Please look at the claims of Christ and realize what those claims are. The claim is this is the only God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The God who is, who was, who is, who was, who is to come, the only one you're ever going to meet, is the God who's revealed in the Scriptures. That's the claim of Christianity. Then the Spirit. And he says the seven spirits before his throne. Some say this, should, this could be the sevenfold spirit. And what does that mean? That means the, the spirit, uh, scholars disagree here. They say, some of them say there's a list of seven properties in Isaiah about the Spirit of God. Maybe that's what he's speaking about. I would like to suggest to you this. It's the Spirit who dwells in the seven churches. That is, the Spirit who actually dwells in the church. We're going to speak of seven churches, so we'll speak of the sevenfold Spirit. And all he's saying, I think, is that this is the God who is among us. He is immense, perfect. He indwells His church. And He comes from the very throne of God. So the seven spirits, or the sevenfold Spirit, the Spirit who fills the seven churches, is the Spirit who is eminently with us. So... The Father and the Spirit. We've got about five minutes. We're going to finish up. And we'll see here, he now talks about the Son. The Father, the Spirit, and the Son. Now, the first thing he says about the Son is he's a faithful witness. Jesus Christ never compromised the truth to save his own neck, ever. And when he calls us to follow him, he calls us to be faithful witnesses. This is the kind of language you're going to see throughout Revelation. They were called to make a decision. Who is the real God? Where is grace and peace to come from? Having made that decision, we're going to see that now we're called to be the faithful witnesses of that message of who the real God is so that others may know grace and peace. Jesus Christ was a faithful witness. Secondly, He was the firstborn from the dead. It doesn't say He was born from the dead. It doesn't say He was just raised from the dead. It just says He's the firstborn. That means there are others to come. He's the first fruits of the harvest. The rest of the harvest come later. Guess who that harvest is? Us guys. So he's gone ahead of us in the resurrection. That's who Jesus Christ is. He proclaimed the message faithfully during his public ministry for three years. It took him to the cross. He was raised from the dead and exalted to heaven to prepare a place for us. So we shall be the other sons who come later. And thirdly, he's the ruler of the kings of the earth. He rules over all the nations. There's not one square inch of this world that doesn't belong to Him. Not one square inch. All the countries, all the cultures, all the nations, all the religions, all the people belong to Jesus Christ and He is the ruler of the kings of the earth. You know, I was in the the Mideast not too long ago, just last month, and with uh, the Iraqi evangelical pastors who were there. There are only 13 of them in Iraq and 11 of them were in the meeting that we had in Jordan. And... uh, Several of you have asked me, well, what did they think about, you know, the American uh, liberation slash invasion or whatever? What's their opinion? Well, to be honest with you, I never even broached the subject out of respect for them. And they never broached it with me out of respect for me. Because we all knew that we were there for a different purpose. And that was to advance the kingdom of the king of kings. And it really doesn't matter who's king now anywhere. We're there to advance the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we're not going to get bogged down in politics and military strategies and all the rest. We're going to advance the kingdom. So I was grateful for that. But on one occasion, of course, I know no Arabic, but some words are real obvious, like Saddam. (laughs) 
and bush. <laughs> so I, I was listening to prayer time, and uh, I did have a translator even for prayer time. But it wouldn't translate everything. He would just give me a kind of a paragraph summary, you know, at the end of each prayer. But I heard Saddam, and I heard the word bush. And I punched him and said, what, what is that? And he said, what they're saying is that Jesus Christ is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And He's the ruler of all the earth. And He's their ruler. And that He has been the ruler. He is the ruler. And He will be the ruler forever. And they're just saying that Saddam is a has-been. And then they went through the nations of the Arab world and they talked about each of the kings and presidents. They're has-beens. They're temporary. They're here and they're gone. They're has-beens. And they said, Bush is a has-been. And they're right. We're all has-beens. And we're in a season of political uh, campaigning where we're thinking about political power. We're thinking about military power because of the big problems in Iraq and so on. We're surrounded by power. We've all got organizational charts. We've all got income levels. We tend to define ourselves, whether on the winning side or the losing side, whether it's politics or military or economics or the car you drive or the house you live in. Is your house the best one on the street or the worst one on the street? Do you drive a car that's brand new or one that's four years old? We all measure ourselves by the means of human power. Let me tell you, Jesus Christ is the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the ruler of all the earth. He is the definition of power. He's got it all in His hand. So if you want to define yourself by real power, you get into Christ. Now you've got power. Because He was, He is, He's the One who is to come. He's the Lord. And that is the fundamental message of Revelation. He is great. What are you doing messing around and making mud pies when you could be enjoying the glory of basking in His kingdom? Why are you wasting your time? Why are you serving other gods? And if you are serving Him, why are you looking down instead of looking up? Why are you discouraged and living like a class cynic instead of one who believes that He has all power in His hands and He's asserting it on your behalf to give you grace and peace? This is the message of Revelation. Let's dig into it. Next week, let's pray. Father, thank You so much for this Lord Jesus Christ and for the privilege of serving You today. May we do so faithfully. In His name we pray. Amen.